If you would, turn to Philippians chapter 3. The book of Philippians chapter 3. Pastor Alex is going through a series on Matthew right now. He's the teaching pastor here. But occasionally, when I have opportunity to preach, we're going through a series on Philippians. This is the 12th sermon, I believe, in the book of Philippians. We're finishing up chapter 3 this week. Only one chapter left in the book of Philippians. So we're going to be at the end of chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained this, the resurrection from the dead, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, that's Paul straining for the resurrection wanting to attain the resurrection. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, any, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And here's our text. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach your word, we want your help. So, Father, through your spirit, make your word alive to us, enliven our hearts as we, as we sit now and listen to your word preached. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. My very favorite novel, very favorite book, is a book called A Tale of Two Cities by Charles... That wasn't funny. I don't know why there was laughter there. Uh, apparently it's not your favorite book, but it's mine. A Tale of Two Cities. Get a load of this guy. Um, it's by Charles Dickens. Uh, it's a book of dualities. There's a lot of contrasting pairs in the book. So two of the main characters are uh, two men, Charles Darnay and Sidney Carton. Uh, one who is a dignified, hardworking, self-made family man. The other, a bitter, lonely, drunken, self-pitying man. They bear a striking resemblance to one another physically, but they couldn't be more different. There's two countries in view in the book, England and France, and therefore two cities 
London, and Paris. Uh, there are two women in the book that are obvious contrasts. The, the pure and delicate and good Lucy Minette and the evil, scheming, ruthless Madame Defarge. Uh, this duality comes through most clearly in the opening lines of the book. Most, if not all of you, probably know the first sentence of this book by heart. You probably recite it. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Uh, our brother David Ray delivered a sermon a couple weeks ago that shared this dual theme. It was called Two Gates, Two Paths, Two Destinies. His text was Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14 on the words of Jesus. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That sermon placed before you, Jesus placed before his listeners, a duality, two choices. You want to go through the wide gate or the narrow gate? You want the easy way or the hard way? Or more pointedly, do you want life or do you want destruction? Do you want to be one of the few or one of the many? This sermon is basically just going to be like a Pauline retelling of David's sermon from two weeks ago. Because today's text gives us the same duality of choices here. Just framed with different questions. Who do you want to look like? Do you want to look like Paul? Or do you want to look like an enemy of the cross? What is your end? Will it be destruction? Or will it be a glorious resurrection? Where is your home? Where is your citizenship? Is it here? Or is it there? The main question we're going to consider this morning, looking at these two options, is who do you want to look like? Who do you want to imitate? And where do you ultimately want to be? Paul gives us two options. We can imitate him and ultimately be transformed into the image of Jesus, or we can look like the enemies of the cross and ultimately meet destruction. So this morning, do we want to be earthly citizens or do we want to be heavenly citizens? There is no third group. Now, most people that you know probably don't sound like either one of these groups. Right, like the Christians that you know, you probably know a lot of people that identify as Christians. Uh, you might not look at them and think that, boy, they look just like the Apostle Paul. That's, boy, that's a high bar to reach, right? So it's probably very few of the Christians that you know that you would think, oh, yeah, they look just like Paul. And probably very few of your lost friends or coworkers or neighbors look like this horrible description we have in this text. Right, like you wouldn't look at your neighbor, probably, and think his God is his belly. His mind is on earthly things. His end is destruction. He's just a normal guy, right? He's going to work every day, got a family, he's trying to get ahead in the world. 
But despite all appearances, everyone is going to end up in one of these two groups. Either you, like Paul, labor in hope of a glorious resurrection, or like the enemies of the cross, you are destined for destruction. Your God is your belly, or your God is the coming Christ. Your home is here, or your home is there. These are the two mutually exclusive options set before us. You know what that means, mutually exclusive? You have two options, you have A and B, and A excludes B. You choose A, you don't get B. There's no B. And mutually, likewise, B excludes A. You choose B, you don't get A. They're mutually exclusive options. It's one or the other. They are two options that exclude each other. That's what we have this morning. It's a tale of two cities. City of destruction or the celestial city. You will be in one of them. You will call one of them your home. So I want us to look at these two options as they're laid out in the text and then conclude with Paul's conclusion. So first, let's look at these enemies of the cross. So we're going to start with sort of the second choice that Paul puts forward. He lays out this choice by way of like a negative example. He says, look at the text. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So join in imitating me and imitate anybody else who's imitating me. For many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So imitate me because many don't. They are enemies of the cross. So even though he doesn't explicitly say, imitate me or imitate these enemies of the cross, that's effectively what's being said here. Right? It's like if you have, you have two kids. And let's say uh, you're teaching one of your kids how to brush their teeth properly. Right? Okay, so you're talking to your son. You say, okay, we're going we're gonna to brush correctly. We want to get all the way up to the gums. Brush like me. Do what I'm doing. See, I'm spending equal time on the different portions of the mouth. I'm brushing for about 90 seconds to two minutes, brushing all the way to the gum line. Right? Don't miss a spot. Brush like me because your sister is going to the dentist tomorrow to have four cavities filled. What are you saying? You're saying, brush like me because this is the alternative. Right? Brush like me so you don't end up like her in this way. That's what Paul's doing here. Imitate me because there are many who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, who specifically is Paul talking about? Well, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because there are a lot of different theories from a lot of different commentators on who specifically he has in mind here. But the very fact that the question is framed that way leads me to believe it's not just some general group. I think he has people in mind here. Why? Well, because he's talked about these people often to the Philippian Christians, right? Look what he says here. For many of whom I have often told you, I've told you about them often. And also, Paul tells them with tears. Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. I don't think Paul is exaggerating here or using hyperbole. I don't think this is just another way for Paul to say, I'm really sad about this. I think he's 
I think he's speaking frankly, honestly. I think he's literally got tears in his eyes as he's writing about these individuals, these people. I think Paul means what he says. So it could be, it's plausible, that perhaps these are companions of Paul that have turned away from Christ. They were once friends of his. And so I'm sure he's picturing these people as he writes. So imagine this. Imagine a Christian brother or sister who has meant so much to you. You've broken bread with them. They've joined you in the fight for faith. You've prayed for one another. And they end up as enemies of this Christ that you used to love and serve together. They're haters of that Christ now. Wouldn't it break your heart to think about them? To talk about them? To use your own close companions as cautionary tales. It's heartbreaking. Imagine specific brothers and sisters in this congregation. Imagine how painful it would be if they slipped away, turned away, became enemies of Christ. Could it be that this is why Paul has tears in his eyes as he writes these words? This is conjecture. But let's take a look at what we do know about these enemies of the cross. Well, first, their God is their belly. What a rich line, strong line. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, simply put, they're ruled by their appetites. Led around by what they want to do all the time. Their God is their stomach. I don't think that literally means like they're, they're gluttonous, although that could be one expression of this. They're just led around by their desires, their passions. There are no considerations other than what will make me happy. Does that sound familiar? We hear that message preached all the time in our culture today. Our worldly society today is willing to set fire to anything and everything as long as they feel that it will give them some subjective sense of happiness. Objective categories of man and woman don't care. Gets in the way of how I feel about myself. Their God is their belly. No considerations other than what will make me happy. Paul condemns this sort of mindset earlier in chapter 2. He speaks of a group of people that all they seek are their own interests. That's what we have here. What else? They glory in their shame. See, his contrast. We glory, this is from Philippians, we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. These enemies of Christ glory in their shame and make a God out of their own flesh, their own desires and appetites. Their value system is reversed. Shame is glory. Things that should be gloried in are shameful. Their moral compass is always pointing the wrong direction. South is north. Dark is light. Death is life. Things that are shameful, they glory in them. And again, boy, if you don't see this all over the place today, things that should make people ashamed are now paraded, worn on t-shirts, planted as flags in their front yard, a happy, glorious, celebrated display of things that ought to be shameful, things that God has condemned, things that our own conscience and, and God's divine power and nature that are manifest on the created order should tell us is wrong. These things are celebrated praised woe unto those who call evil good and good evil even if you're doing it for the sake of 
authenticity or self-expression. Their minds are set on earthly things. Sort of like a summary statement of these people. Their minds are set on earthly things. So do you count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of Christ? Got that from this chapter? Or do you seek your own interests? Make a God out of your own wants, your desires. Turn everything and everyone around you as just an object to get to what you want out of life. Are you led around by your passions or are you gladly, happily subject to the lordship of Jesus? These are the two options. Paul is sitting in a dungy prison cell writing this. He's in chains. If your mind is set on earthly things, you have nothing to rejoice in in that circumstance. But Paul is the ultimate contrast or foil to these people. Their minds are set on earthly things, and Paul will give up anything on this earth because his mind is set on heavenly things. John Calvin put it this way. Those who are not regenerated by the Spirit of God think of nothing but this world. Those who are not regenerated, not born again by God's Spirit, they think of nothing but this world. Their minds are set on earthly things. And this is many. He says many walk as enemies of the, of the cross. David Ray mentioned this in his sermon a few weeks ago. There's a broad path. Many there be that find that broad path that leads to destruction. But do not be deceived. That is its end. And Paul says that here. Their end is destruction. Eternal destruction. So that's one option. But it's really only offered as a contrast to this other option. That we ought to be imitators of Paul. We ought to be like Paul. So in what are we imitating Paul? In what ways are we to be like Paul? Well, in everything that Paul just described in verses 1 through 16 of this chapter. If you remember, as we looked at chapter 3, we made mention of the fact that this chapter is very autobiographical. There's a lot of Paul talking about Paul in this chapter more so than a lot of other places in his writings. And so now as he finishes this thought, he tells them, be like me in these things. I've told you kind of what I'm like and what my experience has been with the gospel. Be like me. Rejoice in the Lord like I rejoice in the Lord, Paul says. Glory in Christ. Shun your flesh like Paul did. Throw away anything that is necessary if you might gain Christ. Know the Lord. That's this chapter where he says, that I may know him. Do anything possible, by whatever means necessary, that I may know the Lord in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Make it your aim, like Paul, that by any means possible, I will obtain the resurrection from the dead. Press on toward the day of Christ, forgetting those things that are behind and looking forward to Christ's return. Be like Paul in these ways. Imitate him in all these ways. And don't just imitate Paul. Look what he says. Brothers, join in imitating me. So imitate me together. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there are people who walk according to the example that Paul and his companions have given. Those people are, you could say, imitating Paul. Paul now tells the Philippian Christians, imitate me and keep your eyes on people that are imitating me. 
So don't just imitate Paul because Paul's absent from them. So he tells them, find people around you who are imitating me already and do what they're doing. So imitate me and imitate anyone else who's imitating me. Well, Paul is absent from us just like he was absent from them. And so we can and must do the same thing. You can find faithful examples of Christian piety and godliness and make it your aim to follow after those examples. This is especially helpful for younger Christian men and women. Find faithful saints and attach yourself to them. Be long in their homes. Be among their families. Spend time with them as much as possible in their presence. Ask them questions. Learn from them. Every single godly man or woman in this church could give you the names of faithful examples that they learned from and patterned themselves after. So if you're an immature Christian, if you're a young person that's a Christian, if you're looking to grow in godliness and maturity, keep your eyes on those who walk after the example that Paul has given. Because they're in this church. Pay attention to them. So we ought to imitate Paul instead of being one of these enemies of the cross. It's reminiscent of something Paul said earlier. Quote, that you may be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul supports this idea by bringing up this, uh, this idea of heavenly citizenship. I want to make a big deal of this, this word that Paul uses. Let's look back at the text. Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Because many of whom I've often told you and now I tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame and their minds are set on earthly things. But, contrast, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This word citizenship, it's a really interesting word. So it's the same exact word that we saw earlier in Philippians 1.27. Actually, turn over. It's just a couple of pages. So just turn over to Philippians 1.27. So this is a text we looked at several months ago. I just want to remind you of something we saw in this text. Paul says in Philippians 1.27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. You are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word there, one word, that is one Greek word that is translated for us in English, let your manner of life be. It's one word in Greek. And it's the verb form of that word that we just saw in Philippians 3, citizenship act this way be a citizen of this kingdom and manifest that in your behavior let your manner of life be thus 
In other versions, in Philippians 1.27, it's translated as conduct yourselves in this way or something similar. It's not a common word. Uh, Paul has words that he often uses when he's telling people to be a certain way or to do a certain thing. And he doesn't use that word here in Philippians 1. He uses that word polytuiste is the Greek word. The reason I say it is because I hope you hear that polit. Polytuiste. Polit. Polis. Like metropolitan. Politics. Right? Um, Indianapolis means city. City-state. Think of a place where people are citizens. So that's behind all these words. So this word that Paul uses here has this idea of being a good citizen. Be a good representative of your fatherland. And it's the same exact word he uses in Philippians 3. Conduct yourselves in this way. So why does Paul use this word? What's he trying to get across? Well, I think there are two components of play here. I think one, there's the component of behavior. What governing body is going to regulate your behavior? You're here on earth. Are you therefore going to act, think, speak like a citizen of earth? Of this world's order? You understand the nature, the structure, the quality of a government, of a state, has great implications on its citizenry. Right? If a government is openly corrupt, that will have an effect on how its citizens act and interact. My wife is from South America, and she'll tell the stories plainly that, you know, if you get pulled over by a cop in South America, it's a good bet that you can just give him a bribe and be on your way, and that's probably why he pulled you over in the first place. At least it's that way in her city, which is the largest city in her country. What does that do to citizens? How they act towards the state. How they expect the state to act towards them. How they then interact towards one another. God established the state as a minister to reward the one who does good and to punish the wicked. It's supposed to bear the sword of God's wrath against the evildoer. And the further away a governing body or a state removes itself from that commission, that duty, the more egregious misbehavior can be expected from its citizens. Right, let me say that again. The state has been given marching orders. The government has been given marching orders by Christ. The further away it removes itself from those marching orders, the more you can expect to see lawlessness abound in its citizens. But you, Christian, you are not a citizen of an unjust state, not ultimately. Though you may be an American citizen now, you're ultimately a citizen of heaven. So you were once under the power and authority of this world's system, but you have been delivered from that system. You've been taken from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of light, of God's Son. Your citizenship has been transferred. Paul makes this plain in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. He says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. And Paul eventually concludes in that chapter, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling which with, with, with which you have been called. So what does Paul do? He lays out this truth, this fact, that you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, and then he urges you to bring your behavior in line with that fact. Let your behavior, your deeds, reflect your citizenry, your homeland, where you're actually from. Your behavior should be governed by the kingdom, the culture to which you belong. So put off lust. Heavenly citizens are pure in their mind and motives. You have no part in lust. Put away covetousness. You have a king that is gracious, who has promised to know and give you exactly what you need before you ask him. Heavenly citizens have no need to covet what other people possess. What good thing would your king withhold from you? Put off sloth, idleness, laziness. Citizens of heaven are industrious people. Working hard, they understand and embrace the goodness of godly labor. I had a friend share this quote with me uh, just a couple days ago. The Puritan John Flavel writes this on the topic of good and godly labor, how a citizen of heaven ought to act regarding his work. Listen to this. Sin brought in sweat. So you understand, labor is a result of the fall of sin. Sin brought in sweat. But now, not to sweat increases sin. That's so good. Yes, sin brought in sweat. Yeah, yeah work, that, that laborious, tired feeling we get from work. Yeah, that's a result of sin. But now, it's wicked, it's sinful to avoid work, to be negligent in your labor. Put off that kind of behavior as a Christian, as a citizen of heaven. Christian, in your work, in your home, in your words, in your deeds, do not behave like a citizen of this world. Because you're not one. You don't belong to this world. You belong to another world. Second, why does Paul invoke the citizenship imagery? Yes, to, to bring up the fact that our, our behavior ought to be governed by this, but also our heavenly citizenship ought to increase our hope. It ought to strengthen our hope. When Paul mentions citizenship, he doesn't rush to conclusions about behavior. Though I said, I think those things are baked into the, the cake with this word citizenship. Where does he go? Look at the text, verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Paul does not merely employ this citizenship imagery for the sake of saying, act like a citizen of heaven. He wants your heavenly citizenship to give you hope. He wants the fact that you belong to another place and not this place to stir up your faith, your hope. So instead of patterning your life after those whose end is destruction, you can rejoice, you can have hope that a glorious incorruptible body just like the Lord's is your guaranteed future as a citizen of heaven. 
there is a consistent focus throughout this book on the resurrection, on the day of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's Paul's prayer later in chapter 1 of Philippians that they would be a pure and blameless people for the day of Jesus Christ. That the resurrection day would find them blameless, holy, pure. Their fearlessness before their opponents is a clear sign that they have a salvation that awaits them in the future. Chapter 2, Paul tells them to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, the day of the resurrection, he may be proud of them that he didn't run in vain. His work paid off in them. Chapter 3, earlier in this chapter, Paul says that by any means possible, he wants to attain the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection has been a huge theme in this chapter and in the book in general. And we see it on our text here as well. Paul holds out the coming of Christ as a source of hope. It is a thing that you ought to think about, Christian. You are a citizen of heaven, and so you ought to call to mind, I am awaiting a coming king. There is a glorious resurrection in front of me. It is my guaranteed future as a child of God. How else can someone who is terminally ill sit here and tell us, cancer can't do anything to me? That's what Jamaica said. On a Sunday evening, she sat right here. Just how long, a week ago? said, cancer can't do anything to me. Well, it took her life, didn't it? No. It couldn't take her life. Cancer could only do to her what her Lord, her King, allowed it to do, ordained that it would do. Cancer was always on a leash. All it could do was take her home to the place where she's a citizen to the celestial city, to her fatherland. That's all cancer could do. Why? Because her Lord said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though she die, yet shall she live. And anyone who believes in me shall never die. That's what Jesus said. And so... Yesterday afternoon, Jamaica Jackson stood before the living Christ, her Lord, in whose arms she now awaits a glorious resurrection. Even now, on the other side of death, the hope of the Christian is a glorious resurrection where our bodies will be transformed to be like his glorious body, never to die. Paul wants us to join her in that hope. Paul wants living Christians to make their hope the fact that they will live again. That their king is coming to transform them into an eternally glorious body. So Paul is holding out for us as this hope the very person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the living, actual, real person of Jesus Christ is coming again. And Paul holds that forward as our hope. So, as John, Newton, as John Newton put it, every step along the path of life is a battle for the Christian to keep the two eyes of the heart on Christ. Let me say that again. Every step along the path of life is a battle 
for the Christian to keep the two eyes of the heart on Christ. Our eyes, our heart's eyes, are drawn constantly to the things of this earth. Always. And yet, Paul tells us, Christ tells us, wait, look, eagerly anticipate the coming of Christ. Don't, get, don't be at home here. Because this is not the country of which you are a citizen. There's an implied connection here between the hope of heavenly citizenship and our behavior on earth as heavenly citizens. The Bible makes this clear elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 John 3, 3. Everyone who has the hope of Christ's appearing purifies himself as Christ is pure. That's what John says. You hear what John's saying there? It's the same thing that Paul's saying. If you hope in Christ's appearing, if you genuinely believe that the Lord will return, you take comfort in Christ's coming, then you will act like one who believes that. That hope will generate a different way of life for you. 1 Peter 3, Peter says the same thing. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, the promised new heavens and new earth, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Paul says it again in Romans 13. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This happens all the time in the scriptures where your hope is expected to produce a certain type of life. Where you have your faith, your belief, your trust, it's not just a card you fill out, it actually is expected to produce deeds, acts, words, thoughts. So are we people who hope in Christ? If we are, we will imitate Paul. We will live like Paul. We will say, by any means possible, I will be resurrected. By any means possible, I will be raised as Christ was raised. We will purify ourselves as Christ is pure. We will be diligent to be found without spot when he comes. We will cast off works of darkness and put on the armor of light. We're Christians. We confess our sins every week when we come to, to gather together. We have a prayer of confession each week. Why? Because we still sin. But we want to cast those sins off day by day, hour by hour. Am I complaining? Am I grumbling? I cast that off. This isn't my home. I'm a citizen of heaven. Why would I complain? Am I angry at my spouse? Am I frustrated sinfully with my kids? Because I feel like I'm not getting enough me time? Put that off. No more. Why? Because my Lord is returning. I'm a citizen of heaven. Have I been negligent in meeting the needs of my brothers and sisters? Have I been consumed with my own desires? Have I, to some degree, made my belly my God? I'm living my minutes and days just thinking about what I want next. Have I been negligent in serving and helping my brothers and sisters? Put that off because my Lord is returning. He's coming. And I don't want to be dreadful of his appearing. I don't want to be anxious about his appearing. I don't want to be found as a slothful, useless servant when he comes. I want to rejoice at the thought of his appearing. I want to anticipate his coming. 
I don't want to hear from him, why did you call me Lord, Lord, and yet neglect to do the things that I say? And so this hope of the heavenly citizen, we see also, is a sure hope. Where do we see that? Well, it's guaranteed by one who holds all authority in his hand. Look back at the text. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How's he going to do this? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So Paul was getting at when he said that I may know the power of his resurrection. It's the power that allows him to subject all things to himself. And we are like Paul to know the power of this resurrection. And finally, chapter 4, verse 1. Let's finish where Paul finishes. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What a great summarizing statement. Stand thus. Stand like this. Be immovable in these things. And notice, he doesn't deliver this as some harsh command. He's not abrasive here. He's warm. He's affectionate. He's tender with them. There's a sweetness that's here as he's telling them to stand firm. Do you hear that? My brothers, whom I love. He says that again. He calls them his beloved. Whom I long for, my joy, my crown. Stand firm. A brief aside here. If someone were to ask you, uh, who is Paul's joy and crown? You probably would not guess Oh, the saints at Philippi. Right? Like an exalted, elevated attribution like that. My joy, my crown. You would expect that to be reserved for Christ, right? But note this exalted language that Paul uses here to describe his Christian brothers and sisters. Note it and be instructed by it. Are your thoughts of your Christian brethren this exalted? This lofty? Do you understand your dependence on them this acutely? If not, you're missing out. If you don't have Christian brothers and sisters that you could look in the eye and tell them, grab them by the shoulders and say, I love you. You're my joy. You're my crown. You don't have brothers and sisters like that? You're missing out. If you don't have one, get one. Find them. The Holy Spirit is, there's a unity that the Holy Spirit provides. Jesus says in the high priestly prayer that he wants us to be one even as he is one with his own Father. So if you don't have those sorts of friendships or you don't estimate your Christian friendships with that much height, that much depth, it's not the fault of the Holy Spirit because that's part of his job description is to bind me to you and you to me with the level of depth of unity that exists even among the Trinity. Truly a miracle is Christian friendship. And this is the way that Paul feels about the church in Philippi. It's in that context of dearness and nearness that he tells them, stand firm, you whom I love. So, two options. Two visions of what you want your life to be. Imitate Paul and ultimately be like Christ. 
And not just figuratively, in a very real and literal sense, your body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Or, don't imitate Paul. And in just a literal and real sense, become an enemy of Christ and his cross. If this is you, if you're hostile to Christ, you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, please know, even though you are his enemy, Christ lived and died and lived again to save his enemies. Christ delights to save his enemies. Every Christian in this room will gladly and joyfully attest, I was once an enemy of the cross. I was once a rebel against my Lord. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us sons and daughters and no longer enemies. It is only by his mercy that we were granted clemency. We were allowed to surrender and find peaceful terms with the king. So unbeliever, turn from destruction because Christ will have you. Christ would delight to have you. Christian brother or sister, be encouraged. Stand firm. Be like Paul and behave like a heavenly citizen who has a sure hope in a glorious resurrection. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we confess you already know it. You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. But Lord, we confess that we love this world too much. God, partly because you have created so many good and wonderful things. And God, we rejoice to know that we will enjoy your good creations for eternity with you. But Lord, we love this world too much even in sinful ways. Ways that distract us from our heavenly citizenship in ways that are unbecoming of a citizen of the kingdom. And Lord, we repent of those things. God, help us to enjoy the things of this world for your sake. God, please, by your spirit, teach us what it means that even as we eat and drink, we would do so for the glory of God. God, as we sit around our lunch tables this afternoon, help us to praise God with every taste. Help us to enjoy the things of this world in ways that are not sinful, but are becoming of heavenly citizens. And God, create in us a desire and a hope and an anticipation to look forward to our glorious resurrection. God, thank you for our resurrection. Thank you that we get to look forward to this. Thank you that you're not doing away with matter, but that we will get to, to keep our bodies glorified forever. God, make this our hope by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.